Or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1, 1 through 10. You may be seated. Well, first of all, I don't know. share my testimony. Um, I want to start with saying this. Uh, the Bible says that the people of Israel were redeemed from Egypt. Um, it wasn't until a few years ago that I realized that the word redeemed meant uh, purchased at a price, purchased out from their slavery. Um, the Bible says that Jesus is our redeemer, our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. I know that we're going through a series in Galatians, but when I read that word, those words in uh, Colossians, I'll never forget the thought that we were bought out from darkness, our sins, into something else. Um, the biggest part of my testimony is that for a large part of my Christianity, God was distant and I thought everything had to do with my own effort. And God was far, so then I had to take control, do things my way, be the big dog. <clears throat> The reality is that I spent a lot of energy trying to do that. Both take control of the things that I could and hide the things that showed any sign of weakness. Um, so today you're going to hear uh, a part of that story uh, in a form that's a little different. But I want you to listen in. And for those of you who uh, experience the same sorts of needs to give effort to hide weakness, I hope that hearing this uh, will help you see that in our Redeemer, we have every good gift. In our Redeemer, there's no need to hide. To live as the redeemed. To bring to light what I would rather leave unseen. To be unveiled and transparent. To take off the cloak and mask has been much harder for me. Though I know the truth. I know that I've been saved, but I think back to my younger days, my older ways, the million times I've misbehaved, and it gets hard to feel free amidst the grace. I don't know how. I'm a broken cup from a broken home with a photo book that's always shown a family of smiling faces, defaced in, hiding the real pain of a father who's been unfaithful and a mother who was losing herself. My father always had a family photo with him. But it didn't matter because he didn't come back when he left. And my mother would always kiss and hug us and tell us how much she loved us just before she'd take that whole bottle of pills to finally go to rest. No one has had a family like mine. No one has seen my brothers crying, my mother's attempts at dying and had to look at every family photo and see that it was lying. Four broken cups shine to look clean, glued together by a stream of tears stood together in that picture. Hoping to hide the truth. No one else knew what was going on at home. No one. Hiding is all I've known. It's what I do. And as badly as I'd like for you to get to know me, I'm too scared to show the truth. So please, please, don't turn the page of this photo book and look into my youth. There you'll see this broken cup trying to fill and satisfy his yearning to be affirmed and finally be recognized for the right that he had earned to be seen. He became a fiend. 
Hiding and creeping in the dark with girls of fragile hearts easily swayed by his words. Never deterred by his conscience, he continued down this path. He knew it wouldn't last, but he tried to fill himself up before he crashed. Cracked on the ground, pieces shattered. That's my story. And as hard as it is to tell it, I'll tell you all of it. All of it, in hopes that you would grab a hold of it and learn with me to live as the redeemed. To bring to light what you would rather leave unseen, to be unveiled and transparent. To take off the cloak and mask and realize that the things of your past, that the things of my past, have been paid for with a payment that will eternally last, that payment of the cross. See, there's still film left on this camera, so all is not lost. And though like a photo that's been crushed has many creases, sin has left us with many scars. And like a broken cup is left in many pieces, I know where you are. I know where you are. So look with me. Turn the page of the photo book and look to the place where the next shot will be placed, where the red eye will be erased and will be taken from the darkness and put into a spot of light and of grace. Look with me there. And see the picture of the firstborn risen from the dead. Christ. And live. Learn to live as the redeemed. Because to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. We are no longer slaves. We are the redeemed. study of the book of Galatians. Galatians declares the truth of salvation by faith alone in Christ with a joyous freedom afterwards. Therefore you see the broken chains because once we have put our faith in Christ, this gospel of grace which we all need all of our lives is powerful. It sets us free. We've entitled this series, Galatians, Free Indeed, because the gospel sets us free from the bondage of sin. If you grew up down south, or if you were to be at my home and listen to conversations with my family or friends from Alabama, you'd soon pick up that there's this customary interaction that's necessary before you get to your point. Things like, how are you doing? Um, how are the kids? How's, how's Uncle John? Um, did you hear about? And the other thing I'd even be close friends is, it may be a business person calling, but there's that, that polite mindset that you do that before you get to your point. Now, I remember some 30-something years ago when I moved up north to Chicago. I must be honest, I don't believe that now, but I used to think, man, these people up here are kind of blunt. They just go right to the point. Again, I don't believe that now. But I think there's definitely a time in our lives to ditch these customary, polite, social graces and bluntly state the problem or issue at hand. If there's a burning house, we need to call the fire department quickly. 
an injured child needs immediate care. And Paul, in the book of Galatians, ditches all his normal, polite greetings when addressing the Galatian churches. Today I want us to see first that there were problems in the churches in Galatia. Verse 6 is such a powerful statement. Paul says to these Galatian Christians, he says, I am astonished, I'm shocked, I'm, I'm surprised that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul had little time for polite introductions. His tone, his frame of mind is strikingly different from all his other epistles that he had written. You see a major difference, as I said, how he introduces the epistle compared to his others. He typically gives thanks to God for those he's writing to. If you were looking Romans 1, 8 or 1 Corinthians 1, 4 or Colossians 1, 3 or Philippians 1, 3, in some form or another you'd see Paul saying, I give thanks to God for you. He doesn't because there are issues to deal with. You see, first he's surprised. He, he's, he's shocked. The second we see that he's angry. He's angry at the false teachers who are pulling these converts away. Indirectly, he's angry at these new converts who deserted the Lord. Instead of giving thanks, he bluntly expresses his dismay. I'm amazed, I'm shocked that you're deserting God. He couldn't have stated it in a more shocking way, deserting God. He wanted to jar these believers. No time for diplomacy, no time for restraint or tact, no time for being nice. After, shock, after expressing his shock, his surprise and anger, Paul calls down condemnation on the false teachers in verses 8 and 9. And these words are strong, but the truth and the purity of the gospel was so important to Paul. Verse 8 reads, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's repetition there of God's curse shows the gravity of the offense of those who proclaimed another gospel. The first Christians, of course, were Jewish. But as the gospel spread, Gentiles came to Christ and we began to see cultural issues coming up and clarity of the gospel. A group of false teachers began instructing the, the new converts who were Gentiles that they needed to keep the Mosaic law. They needed to be circumcised in order to please God. They even tried to force Titus who came along with the Apostle Paul 
to be circumcised. They deceived Peter into believing that he could no longer eat with the Gentiles as he had been doing. As we study the book of Galatians, I believe it's necessary that we understand its relationship with the Jerusalem Council, which came after the book of Galatians was written. The Jerusalem Council dealt with all the issues that were bubbling up within the congregations in Galatia and other areas as Gentiles came to Christ. Basically, two questions would, would uh, be answered there. One is, do Gentiles first have to become Jews in order to become a Christian? And do Gentiles have to observe Mosaic law after they become Christians? Acts 15 records all of this council meeting. We see in Acts 15, verse 1, the false teachers speaking there. They say, unless you are circumcised, as required by the law, you can't be saved. It's necessary to circumcise and to order them to keep the law. We see in verse 11, that same chapter, the response of the council. They said, we believe that all are saved in the same way, Jew, Gentile, by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see here then the cultural outworking of aspects as the gospel spread into various areas. Well, second, I want us to see that Paul begins the book of Galatians seeking to establish his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that he spends actually two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, defending who he is and who he was. It was important that people believed in his authority in order for them to accept the truth of God's word. You know, we all get mail. We get junk mail. And probably most of us throw our junk mail in the trash can. I tell you what, when I get a letter from the IRS, I literally open that thing half-shaking because I'm wondering, did I do something wrong? Did I miss out on something? I know they have authority over me. And I know they can make life hard for me. And so I open that letter. I pay close attention. I read through that letter. I get a letter from the city of Chicago if I've gotten ticketed somehow or another for driving incorrectly or if there were some kind of taxes I needed to pay. I pay attention to it because it's the city of Chicago. And I know when I get those summons from Cook County to serve in jury, I can't just throw it away because Cook County has authority over me. And then, of course, there's the state of Illinois. I can keep going. But you see, there are authorities over us, and we listen, and we obey. The same way Paul wanted the Galatian Christians to recognize his authority as from God. He defends his authority, as I said, and then chapters 3 and 4, he reiterates the gospel. It's so important that the gospel be clarified. Then 5 and 6... Paul will spell out the practical aspects and effects of the gospel of grace. 
which enables the saint, through the Spirit, to live a godly life in a fallen world. Paul then reminds them of the gospel. What is the gospel? When we ask different people, we hear different things. What is the gospel? They'd been told by these false teachers that it was faith in Jesus plus works, keeping the law, being circumcised. Paul in verses 3 and 4 outlines the gospel. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and our Father. I love the New Living Translation here. It translates it this way. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God, our Father, planned it in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. The gospel, then, is the result of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death was for the forgiveness of our sins and to make us holy for eternity with God. The work of Christ on the cross is sufficient to forgive our sins, but also is adequate to free us from slavery to sin, bondage to sin. This is important, again, in the context of the Galatians, because the Judaizers kept saying the law would sanctify. It was the law in their minds that would sanctify, and that faith wasn't sufficient. Verse 4 makes it clear that salvation from the beginning to the end was the work of God the Father. It's his calling. It's his plan. It's his action, his work. I love Ephesians 1, where it says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world. We might be holy, pure, blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory. The other gospel added law-keeping and circumcision. The false gospel was man-made, man-pleasing. The false gospel put man under bondage, forcing them to keep the law, to keep the Old Testament law as well as being circumcised. It forgot that God's power is demonstrated through his spirit. The false gospel causes men to rely on the flesh and not the Holy Spirit. But what are some of the false gospels that we have today? Can you distinguish between the true gospel and false gospels in the contemporary church? There are many, if we listen. There's a gospel of prosperity, which teaches that Jesus is the way to financial gain. There's a gospel of self, which teaches that Jesus is the way to personal fulfillment. There's that religious tradition, which teaches that Jesus is the way to respectability. And 
the gospel of morality, which teaches that Jesus is the way to be a good person. What makes these false gospels so dangerous is that there are things that could be beneficial. It's good to be prosperous. It's good to be well-behaved, to be respected. You see, as good as these things were and are, they aren't the good news. They aren't a way to salvation. And when these things are added to the gospel, we're in danger of turning from the gospel. We're in danger of distorting the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection must be preached, must be believed, it must be lived out. Otherwise, it'd be lost. Just recently read an article in the Gospel Coalition about an island in the Caribbean named St. Kitts. The people there are being deceived even now. False teachers will come alongside those who will be Christians and unknowingly lead them into heresy. And though the area is radiant with sunshine, it is dark. It is extremely dark. The island itself was kind of forgotten as far as the gospel and missions because at one point, St. Kitts was evangelized. They knew the gospel. They knew the gospel. But now, the gospel there has been distorted. A superficial Christianity focusing on outward appearance is widespread. Some pastors probably resemble a modern-day witch doctor. Sermons are filled with moralisms. Other sermons are focused on prosperity gospel. One's good works or building blocks for your mansion. Of course, more the good works, more the money given, the bigger your mansion. See, St. Kitts Island is an example of the gospel being distorted, resulting in a gospel no longer. So this island that once knew the gospel has lost it until just recently people have gone in. It's because of this type of thing that Paul wants to make sure the gospel remained pure. Sometimes we measure belief more in terms of a person's doctrinal statement. But Paul looks at actual conduct. Because you see, to act contrary to the gospel is to depart from the gospel. We affirm the gospel verbally, or we can, but depart from it in our lives. It's easy for us to, to see the heretic in those who encourage loose living, or those who or attack the authority of God's word. However, sometimes Satan will use morality as well as he does immorality to tear the church down. We see it in various places. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, false teachers uh, forbid marriage and required abstinence from certain foods as means to holiness. Colossians chapter 2, Denial, self-abuse, were means to purity. 
Galatians, of course, as we began looking at it, holiness, according to these false teachers, was through law-keeping and circumcision. Today, of course, we have churches all around us that have these dietary things. I can think of different churches that say you can't eat pork or you can't do this. Um, We have various churches that will say that salvation is achieved through faith plus works. We need to be diligent to maintain the purity of the gospel. It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, apart from any kind of work. We need to be aware of those who would promote godliness through human effort. Works righteousness has no place in the gospel. Brian McLaurin, who's a popular uh, writer, was a pastor at one time. I think he's left the ministry in a sense. But he continues to write books about Christianity. A very popular guy. But he, he exemplifies a distortion of the gospel as he writes. He lumps together churches with synagogues and with mosques. And he discusses the good practices of, of uh, Islam, of Judaism, of uh, of the, of the Buddhist. And while he uses the Bible as a source for his arguments, he flirts with these false religions, and in the midst of it causes confusion. Christ is mentioned in his books as the great teacher, and even as the Savior. We see there's no bloody cross in his writings. A relationship with God the Father takes place is possible only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. Brian's books are edgy and they're hip and the millennial loves to read them and in turn receive a distorted view of what God's word is. So what does all this mean to you me. Again, how do we recognize these false gospels that are all around us? I think probably our greatest danger is not the anti-gospel people outside of the church. I think it comes from within. It's that counterfeit gospel within the church. You know, heretics don't walk around with a t-shirt that says, hug me. I'm a false teacher. They just don't do that. They don't do that. You know what they do? They're so dangerous because they know our language. They, they'll tell you about their salvation. They'll encourage you to trust in Christ. They know our terminology. They present the gospel. It just happens to not be the gospel. It's one of the most dangerous ones of those that talk about Christ. There's a different Christ. I think of the Mormon church, which we're all familiar with. Its official name is the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. How many of us have sat in our living rooms, and if you listen to them, if you're not watching, if you talk with a Mormon or with a Jehovah Witness, they'll talk to you about Jesus Christ. But if you know anything about him, it's not 
the Jesus Christ that we know. They all seem like such nice people. I remember Chris and I, years ago, invited a, a, a lady in. She's an elderly uh, black lady and just loved her. She was a sweetheart. She really was. When we invited her to come back, because we wanted to share the gospel with her alone. We said, come alone, and you can bring, I think maybe one person. She came back with a crew. And they did not open up the Bible. They talked about Jesus. They talked about salvation. When we talk with people, when we hear people talking about the gospel, we need to be careful, discerning, listening. I'll never forget the church locally here of Charismatics. And when Pastor Eric Rivera was here, one of these people questioned his salvation because he had not spoken in tongues. The same week or two, another person was confronted. I've heard since that they don't think that we teach the gospel. Well, as you listen, when they talk about Jesus, is he the Christ who is both God and man? Is he the Christ whose cross is the only atonement for our sins? Is he the Christ who will be the judge as well as the Savior? Is he the Christ whose righteousness alone can make us right with God? Various groups, whether it's Mormons, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses, there's a, there's a group on, on campuses here. I don't know the exact name, but something like Chicago Church of Christ. And they're so legalistic. Be careful. We've had various ones within our church who have been approached all distort the gospel. The gospel is humbling because, you see, you and I, we love to be our own saviors as mankind in general. We love to think that good works can save us and that Christ's work on the cross wasn't really necessary. We like to think that we're tolerant and we're open and therefore we're pleasing to God and God's grace is not really that necessary. The gospel turns out all upside down. It says that we're hopeless and that we need rescuing. A rescue that has nothing to do with us. That's why in verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about the fact that we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That his work on the cross paid for our sins. And it's according to the plan of God. But you see, God is the one who drew us. If we know Christ, it is God who drew us to himself. The gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from words. And we as a church must be willing to proclaim that there is only one way to salvation, only one way to God. That one is not saved by living a good life or doing good works, but it's only through faith in Christ. Acts 4, 12 reads, There is salvation in no, other, no one else, for there is no other name 
under heaven given for men by which we must be saved. And John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet our world continually will take the name of Jesus and they'll twist it and they'll turn it distort it and we need to know it and know it well and so as we look at the book of Galatians we'll be especially the first two chapters looking uh, at Paul and his authority and then verses 3 and 4 looking at the gospel itself and then 5 and 6 because we are in Christ how do we live through the Spirit so I think of the gospel of grace that we're working through in this series, I can't help but think of individuals who might be struggling. We all know the story of the prodigal. This young man ruined his life, so to speak. He left home. He traveled abroad. He wasted his fortune on empty pleasures and shallow pursuits. Eventually, he ran out of money. He ran out of food. He ran out of hope. He was at the end of his rope. What do you do? What do I do when we've made a mess of things? Where do we go when we've blown it? Where do we go when we have driven a wedge between friends? Where do we go when we spread conflict within the congregation? Where do we go when we've betrayed our spouse? When we've alienated our child by harsh words? When we've made thoughtless and insensitive comments, how do we respond when we've slowly drifted away from our faith, compromised the gospel, turned our back on God? You know, as I've been in ministry in my own life, the struggles, I think it's in the midst of crises, it's in the midst of tragedy, it's in the midst of loss of loved ones when we're in pain and, and confused that we begin to question God it's when we're hurting discouraged disillusioned that we need to look to God we need to go back to God's grace in verse 6 that we went through other when, uh, earlier when Paul said I'm shocked that you turned away that you're wandering from God we need to be aware that there are various influences that can draw us away. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to wonder from God. Solomon in 1 Kings 11 says that, that his wives turn his heart away from God into other gods. As we think of that struggle, that proneness to wonder, I go back to the prodigal son. His life is messed up and he says, I'll go back home. As he went home on his way, his father, in Luke 15, says that his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring a fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then they began to celebrate. Galatians often is written as, is described as a letter for legalist, which it could be. But as I look at the book of Galatians, I see also it's a letter for particles, for those who mess their lives up, who are on the verge of apostasy, almost ready to shipwreck, either through moral or spiritual disasters. Galatians begins and it ends calling us all back to the gospel of grace. I'm reminded of that old hymn that I love to hear occasionally. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of his grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So very clear that the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is available for us. If we're drifting this morning, if we're struggling with our walk with God because of things we're going through, we must hang tightly to God's word and we must know that scripture is our authority and we need to heed its warnings no one likes to be warned sometimes we feel like we're being looked down on when we're warned our pride and our sense of self-sufficiency resist warnings even when they're the best thing for us those of you who have children sometimes you've yelled at your kids don't go on the street and they stop And they're not hurt because they heeded the warning. Warnings work. They save lives. But they only work when they're heeded. And as Christians, we must heed the warnings of Scripture and look to Christ and Him alone. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father,